Morning, everyone. It's good to be with you in this historic Japanese hall on this sunny day. Great to have our guests with us, too. Thanks for coming, families. And uh, I don't know if anyone just passed over that, what Terry said. There's almost 100 kids part of Artisan Church. Did, did that just gloss over you? That's insane. Wow, they're going to take us over pretty soon. I don't mind. Um, I just got this text a minute ago, and uh, it's from Lance Odegaard. He said, praying for you, McTee. Look forward to hearing how the preach went from Ireland. And uh, he, uh, he sends his greetings from Ireland. He's been doing a bit of a personal pilgrimage over there, tacked on to a ministry trip. So uh, just keep him in your prayers. And uh, it is good to be here in the pulpit. I'm Scott McTaggart, and I'm uh, the pastor of Community Formation here with Artisan, and continuing our series on Rhythms of Life. Quick question for you. What is your rhythm of life? What is your rhythm of like, life like now? Is it upbeat? Is it poppy? Is it chaotic? Is it relentless? Is it simple? Maybe difficult? Uh, There's some things we can't control, our rhythm of life, the state that we find ourselves in, but there are some things we can control. And so when we look at this phrase, rhythms of life, you can kind of look at it at two two different ways, and one is what is your rhythm of life like? What what are the consequences of the situations you find yourself in? Also, you can use it as a noun. Uh, What is your rhythm of life, or do you have a rhythm of life? And that's how we've been referring to it in this series based on this ancient idea, a monastic tradition uh, called a rule of life. And um, I, I often ask the question, what does this mean anyway? So, so what? And I love Ruth Haley Barton's definition of a rhythm of life. And she says, it is an intentional arrangement of spiritual practices, attitudes, and relationships by which I regularly and routinely make myself available for God's work of transformation in my life. So we're, we're talking about rhythms of life, a way that we can intentionally sort of curate our spiritual life, find places, groups of people uh, to be with, to help us in this spiritual practices that we do alone and in community to help us follow Jesus. Um, or as Ken Shigematsu says, and he's just up the street here probably preaching right now, um, He says, uh, a rhythm of life is simply a rhythm of practices that empowers us to live well and grow more like Jesus by helping us experience God in everything. I love that phrase, growing more like Jesus. And um, there's a lot of things we can say about this, and there's a lot of um, helps that we can give. And I'm I'm really pleased to introduce two of those uh, resources. One is this little workbook. And it's available to anyone who wants it. It's called Marks of Practice, Crafting a Rhythm of Life. And so it will guide you through. There's some preamble, a little bit more about what is a rhythm of life. What could it look like based on that monastic tradition of rule of life? And then uh, intentionally orienting your life around Jesus. So what does that look like with the four directions of upward, inward, outward, withward? And through it, there's places to answer questions, place to fill in. It's a really great resource, and I highly recommend it. So 
pick it up at the info desk after if you'd like that. Another one that is hot off the press and is really sleek and professionally printed. This is the, uh, the daily offices. And uh, it is a way of praying uh, through scripture and praying morning and evening prayer. And it guides you through that. Uh, again, an awesome resource. And this one, this one cost us a bit of money to produce. So we're asking that you would uh, chip in a little bit to, if you want to take one. So we're suggesting a donation of $5. It's pretty simple for a really nice booklet like this. But if you can't afford that, just take one. It doesn't matter. We want you to have this more than we want the money to recoup it. But if we can get a little bit of money back, that'd be great. So pick up that one too. $5, you can get it at the info desk. So those are available to help us. And again, back to this quote, to help us grow more like Jesus by helping us experience God in everything. I'm going to take us back to 1800. And uh, right at the turn of the century, the years 1800, two things were happening. It was the Great Awakening, and it was gaining momentum. And simultaneously, the global demand for cotton was at an all-time high. Two things at the same time. The Great Awakening happening, the global demand for cotton at an all-time high. The invention of the cotton gin was a new thing. And the abolition for the Atlantic slave trade was on, meaning African slaves were no longer being brought over to America. Thanks be to God. But the problem was because of this high demand for cotton, there was an incessant search for free labor. And that phrase, free labor, it just doesn't sound right. Awful. So slave, over, slave owners began breeding their own slaves. They weren't allowed to get slaves over the Atlantic, but they were breeding their own. And this is just tragic, but from the years 1790 to 1860, so over a 70-year period, an increase in the amount of slaves in the South grew from 700,000 to 4 million. 700,000 to 4 million in 70 years. Just tragic. And at the same time, the Second Great Awakening had come to the United States, which brings us to this man here, Charles Finney, quite a good-looking dude. He was a revivalist in his time. He was also very radical and promoted social reform. And he was instrumental in the abolition of, uh, abolition of slavery in the U.S. and equal education for women and African Americans in the United States. He's also been attributed to the one who kind of coined the term or started the idea of the altar call. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there would be a call after the sermon to come forward, repent of your sins, and confess. He was one of the people instrumental in starting that. And so the, I, he, he kind of took it to the next level. He thought that our whole life should be in service to Christ so that when we confess and surrender our lives to Jesus, that means everything. And so he actually did this where he had people come up and when they repented of their sins, they would also be given a pen to sign a document that said you were signing up for the abolition of slavery in America. Basically saying, you surrender your life to Christ? Okay, put your money where your mouth is. And here's the pen. What? Wait, what? Okay, yeah. So men and women are coming up not just to confess sins, but to physically make a stand against systemic and structural evil. And that's what it meant to be an evangelical Christian back then. 
And you can read more about this in the book uh, by Lisa Sharon Harper called The Very Good Gospel. I just love the title of that, The Very Good Gospel. The point in this is if you follow Jesus long enough, eventually the gospel will begin to make demands of your life. If you follow Jesus long enough, eventually the gospel will begin to make demands of your life. And this isn't about earning, uh, but it's about participating in everything that God has done. And when I say demands, maybe other words to use there are convictions or burnings or longings. That when we surrender our life to Christ, He gives us new convictions, new burnings, new longings. And I've come to know this in my short life, that God is not merely just after part of me, that He wants the whole thing. He's interested in all of it, and all of it being pointed to the direction of the kingdom. He wants our flourishing. He wants us to be fully alive humans. And I think the directions really help us in this. They help us first, I think, discern all the different ways in which we are called to orient and reorient our lives to Christ in His way. They help us stay accountable to that way. And it's not just about doing it on our own, but finding people to do this with in community. Or as Lance says, you find yourself some practice homies to, uh, to do this with because we need help and we're not alone. All this in order to be changed ourselves so we can bring change to the world. And today we're focusing on the outward direction, but I really am reminded of how all of these directions interrelate and they, they bounce off of each other and they depend on one another. We can't just be outward people. We need to be balanced with the upward direction, the inward direction, the withward direction. I think Nelson did such a great job last week of tying that in. His sermon was about inward, but man, did you, if you were here, did you feel that call to an upward relationship? It was, it, was so, uh, it was so powerful in that. And even though the message wasn't about upward, it was just threaded in there. And just reminds me, all of these things, we, we focus on one, and maybe that's, a, maybe that's a, a downfall to the way we're laying out this series, but we focus on one, and we mean all of them at the same time. I wonder if we think about the outward direction or practicing the outward direction, um, in terms of practicing the way of Jesus, what does it mean? And I wonder if we could right now even put you on the spot a little bit, collect some words that you think of when you think of the outward direction in terms of practicing the way of Jesus. So outward, what are words that come to mind? You can shout them out with your loudest voice. Servanthood, service, at the same time. Wow. That's powerful. Generosity. Discipleship. What was that? Engagement. Interruption. Love it. Reconciliation. Yeah. Gratitude. Sorry? Intention. I heard tension too, and maybe that's there too. Moderation. Who said that? What do you mean by that? Ah. Hmm. 
your outward life is in, within moderation. Okay. Listening. Justice. Bravery. Mission. Hospitality. Love. It's great. These are awesome words. All really positive words, too. And uh, I'm reminded, thinking about this outward direction, that there are, just as there are unhealthy and healthy ways of practicing the inward direction, I think there are healthy and unhealthy ways of practicing the outward direction. Um, an unhealthy way, perhaps, of practicing inward is that it leads to narcissism, that you only face yourself, you're only inward and you're only concerned about yourself. The definition of narcissism is an excessive interest in or admiration of oneself and one's physical appearance. Or psychology would say it's extreme selfishness with a grandiose view of one's own talents and a craving for admiration. So what does unhealthy outward look like? Well, I think we have an idea, and I could give you uh, probably a hundred examples from my own life of unhealthy outward, but maybe, uh, maybe it even feels a little bit like this story. Um, this guy was known as Rainbow Head Man. And maybe you've seen signs. He was kind of known for, uh, for making popular the, uh, you know, the signs at sporting events that say John 3.16. Uh, how many of you are familiar with these signs, or you've seen them on TV before? Question for you. How many of you came to Christ because of a sign like this? It's a serious question. How many? Anyone? You know what? There may be people. And so I'm, I don't want to judge Rainbow Head Guy because he was following an ambition and one that he felt God placing in his heart. And even... Um, this is crazy, but Tim Tebow, he's a quarterback, national championship in college football. He felt God telling him to write John 3.16 in the zinc in his eyes. So he did it. During the game, it was recorded that people Googled that, uh, that phrase, John 3.16, 94 million times. Americans or people all over the world like, what, what is that? What's John 3.16? Oh, oh, interesting. And I, I have no idea what the response was. But who knows, right? Who knows if someone encountered Jesus through Tim Tebow's zinc? I don't know. So I have a little bit more respect for this guy, Rainbow Man. But it took an unhealthy turn when he uh, unfortunately was arrested and sentenced to three life uh, sentences for holding three hostages in a hotel room so he could get press coverage in order to get this message out. A little bit unhealthy. A, li a little bit on the unhealthy side. And it could have been a very pure motive that started off, but then it took a turn for the worse. Passionate dude. Maybe this could help us in framing a bit of... Um, and understanding of the outward direction. Uh, Ray Anderson says in his book, The Soul of Ministry, he says this, in obedience and response to God's ministry, we gain knowledge of God and of ourselves. 
this obedient response to God's ministry becomes our ministry, which in turn serves as a theological exposition of God's nature and purpose. Basically, what he's saying is when we encounter God truly, when we meet God, when we see Him for who He is, that we are changed and we can't do anything about it. We are changed radically and it leads us to want to do something about it. I'm really interested with this phrase, God's ministry. And I hadn't really thought about that. And I think, if we're honest, we may think of ministry as something the church does, or maybe even worse, only the clergy, only the pastors, uh, that it's a, a formal term that is used in the church. When I think there's, a, there's an interesting concept here that we can learn from. God has a ministry? Interesting. So, if God has a ministry, what is it? Well, FYI, if you Google image search uh, ministry, this image comes up. And I, I don't know what the parallel is, but there might be one there. But what, what comes to mind when you think of this phrase, God's ministry? Let's go back to that quote. Yeah, thanks. Get off that. That's... I Googled that, actually, and I was like, oh, Right. Ministry, the band, forgot. So, uh, Ray Anderson, he says this, every act of God, even that of creation, is the ministry of God. Every act of God, even that of creation, is the ministry of God. When you think of what is the ministry of God, you can make a, quite a long list. Redemption, reconciliation, creation, advocating for marginalized people, being with and for the lonely, the last, the least of society, extending radical welcome. The, the list goes on of God's ministry, what He does. And as we become, I think this is the point of Anderson's quote, as we become obedient to God, as we listen to those convictions, those burnings, those longings, as we begin to surrender our whole life to Him, uh, His ministry becomes our ministry. Or his mission becomes our mission. I want us to listen to the words of John 3.16 this morning. And I know the page number is there, but I want to invite us just to listen to these words this morning. Without looking at them, maybe close your eyes if you want to fix your attention on these words. Let them wash over you this morning. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And in here, I think we can see, uh, we can see three things, and there's probably a ton more, but I see three that we see God's motivation for ministry. Right, Millie? <laughs> we see God's motivation for ministry. We see his, the direction of God's ministry. And we see the goal of God's ministry. So let's start with this idea of the, God's motivation for ministry. What is God's motive uh, for ministry? Well, we know what it is not. And uh, I don't know if you're like this. When someone asks you to describe something, how you... Maybe you go, instead of describing it, you say, well, it's not like this. 
Oh, you met a new guy. What's his name? What's he like? Well, he's not pretentious at all. Or he's not like this or this. Or that sushi place is awesome. What was it like? Well, it's not like the other one or whatever. You know how we describe something based on what it is not? John, I think, is kind of doing this a little bit. In verse 17, he said, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The, the motive for his ministry was not condemnation. And I think sometimes we believe that it might be, that he wants to condemn us, that he wants to look down on us. He wants us to be, uh, yeah, well, he does want us to be fixed, but he, he, he condemns us. And, and he, the word condemn means to charge as guilty, as if you've been guilty of something. That is not his motive. His motive, it says in John three sixteen, is love. For God so loved the world. Love is the motive. We can go through Scripture and we see where this shows up. God is love, First John 4 says. So everything he does, it comes out of who he is, and he is love. And this is the good news, that God showed us his love before we even were aware of needing it. Before we were, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he showed his love. We didn't have to believe or behave or do something to accept it. He loved us before that. Nelson focused us on Mark 12, where this teacher comes to Jesus, trying to corner him, and he asks him, what's the most important thing? Jesus, what, what's your ministry all about? What, what are you doing, and what are you, what's your motive here? And basically, the answer Jesus gives is love. And he quotes uh, two ancient passages from Deuteronomy and then Leviticus. He says, the Shema prayer, which we said this morning in the child dedications, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That, that was the Shema. It was known, Jesus probably said it every day in the morning and at night before he went to bed. But Jesus does something different in his response, and you know the story. He, he adds on Leviticus 19 by saying, and, so loving God is great, but it must lead to loving your neighbor as yourself. I love what Walter Brueggemann says. He says, one of the misfortunes in the long history. Hi. Do you want to give that to me? I'm not sure what to do with it. And I'm not sure what to do here either. <laughs> I need a preaching buddy. <laughs> Walter Brueggemann says, one of the misfortunes in the long history of the church is that we have mistakenly separated love of God from love of neighbor. And always they are held together in prophetic poetry. Love that. Again, you see the directions in there, upward to the outward. Or you can, uh, maybe this is more like you, uh, this Peanuts cartoon. You, a doctor? Ha! That's a big laugh. You can never be a doctor. You know why? Because you don't love mankind. That's why. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. Yeah, it starts to get personal real quick. Unfortunately, loving your neighbor as yourself uh, involves actual people. And this was, I, you have to get this too, in understanding this passage, that the Jewish listeners this would have been so radical and almost offensive to them. The Jewish understanding of neighbor, that word neighbor, was any member of the Hebrew nation and commonwealth, or basically fellow Israelite. 
So good intentions, but it was confined within the people that were like them, the people that believed the same things, that adhered to the similar set of values. And so Jesus shifts the meaning of neighbor here. And he says, and according to him, he says, neighbor is anyone, any person irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live or whom we have a chance to meet. And in Luke's retelling of this, he, he cites the, uh, the Good Samaritan parable. And this is even crazier because if you have an understanding of neighbor as my fellow Israelite, he chooses a Samaritan, someone with different beliefs, worshipped in a different temple, a different race and ethnicity, different values altogether. And he not only made him part of the story, he made him the hero of the story. The Samaritan was the one that Jesus is like, be like him. <laughs> no, what? I will never be a Samaritan. I, I'm going to be like my fellow Israelite. What? Jesus? And I, I just have this feeling that a lot of people left Jesus like a little bit like a little bummed. Like, oh man, this is really hard. Like, why do you have to be so hard, Jesus? Just let me be comfortable. Let, let me be, like, let me have my life, Jesus. Come on. He's like, no, man. He's like, no, man. I don't even know where this is going. <laughs> He's like, no, man. You got to love others. This is a paraphrase. It's a paraphrase. And then the other guy's like, what? He's like, no, man. Take it easy, but take it hard. Okay. I don't know what that means. Okay. Which is a great, yeah, back to the notes here. <laughs> Which is a great segue in uh, the direction of ministry. What is the direction of God's ministry? Well, we know the motive is love. The direction, he says, for God so loved the world. And before I continue, we have to remember that we are part of the world in this scenario. Uh, this isn't for Christians to others. No, this is us. We are part of the world in this scenario. Like Duke Kwan says, it's impossible to love someone you disagree with when you secretly believe they need Jesus more than you do. Thanks be to God. God so loved the world. The direction of God's ministry is always outward. Always outward. The nature of his ministry is active. And this phrase has been popping around my mind all week and I can't escape it. I don't even fully know what it entirely means yet, but I know it's important. And again, it's from Ray Anderson's book. But he says this. He says that uh, ministry precedes theology. Ministry precedes theology. Think about that statement. I think, if I'm honest, that we believe that theology precedes ministry. No, we, get, we understand the doctrines and the truths and then we act out of that. I'm not dissing that. I mean, I spent the last eight years of my life getting a degree at a seminary. I believe in the study of theology. But, as Anderson said, it's only through God's ministry that God's nature and purposes are revealed. Basically, the only reason we have theology is because God acted in the first place. That God said, let there be life. That God redeemed is the only reason we have a theology of redemption. That God radically welcomed us into his own. Is the, the theology doesn't precede ministry. 
For God, it always comes out of His action. And I think what I've learned in this is that the main, the primary way we learn theology is not from books. I know that's a loaded statement, but I believe that it is true. The primary way that we learn theology is not from books. We learn it from being with God. We learn it from an encounter with a loving, real God who is with us and for us. I mean, just that statement is deeply theological. God is with us and for us. And then someone thought, oh, yeah, let's call that the incarnation. Great. Theology. To do, to do, do. But it didn't happen the other way around. God was like, what's the rules about engagement here? Okay, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to welcome them because, because I've, I've already been welcomed in Christ. Okay, great. Good. Let's do it. It happened the other way around. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. I had this, um, I had this dream, and I hesitated sharing this because it's a strange dream, but you know those dreams where you can see yourself in the dream, but you're a character in the dream, you can, you can see yourself. So my wife and I were moving to Vancouver. We were getting ready to start a church, and we we're thinking about it constantly. We are praying about it. We are preparing for this. I had this dream where I saw myself driving down a street that looked like Main Street when it's coming down the incline. And as I was coming down the street, I was driving, and I saw myself on the side of the street. And I don't know why, but I was dressed in a suit, and I was standing out of a building on the street, and I was welcoming people into a building, which I assumed was some kind of church gathering. And in this dream, I'm driving down, and I see myself, but I'm not me in the dream. I'm someone else driving. And for an instant, we connect eyes. So me from the street to me in the car, we connect eyes. And myself on the street, I did this weird thing where I pointed straight into the driver's side, right into the, to the person that was driving, to, to me. I pointed right at me, and I just went like this. Just a simple gesture. And it was so simple and unprofound, but radically profound. I felt going away from driving down the street, I was like, huh, that's a place I could always go to. That was just the sense I had from it. And for years, I pondered this dream. I'm, I'm thinking, when we plant this church, we've got to find this spot in my dream. This is where I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to wear a suit and stand outside and welcome people. And there's going to be someone in a car that I'm going to point to. And maybe it's everyone. I'm just going to point to everyone and keep welcoming them into the church. (laughs) And then I had this epiphany, this revelation. This one day we were praying. We were gathering together for prayer. And I was like, huh. Oh, I get it. I'm both both guys. (laughs) I'm giving... God's welcome, I'm receiving God's welcome. And the only reason I can give God's welcome is because I've received it. That's the only reason. I'm not welcoming people to myself. It's awful. It's the worst church ever. I'm welcoming people to Jesus because He's welcomed me. It was a powerful dream, and it just led me to go down this trail of what I have received. I need to give. 
We cannot be complacent people. We cannot be Christians that receive, 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 and never give. It's not the way of Jesus. I love this prayer, and I'm skipping ahead to it. I can't even find it. You don't have to follow me, Charlotte, but God, this prayer, God, would you comfort the disturbed and disturb the comforted? That's the prayer of my heart for myself. God, comfort the disturbed and disturb the comforted. So all this is great, but what's the goal of God's ministry? Well, I think the passage says it. So the passage is about a longing for the future to arrive in the present, and we know this because the end of the the Scripture talks about eternal life. This is a loaded term as well, and it's a tricky phrase to to translate in the Greek. There's a lot of different opinions about it. The the word is zoe, zoe ionian. Zoe for life and ionian, which some people translate as eternal or long-lasting. So, God so loved the world that we not perish but have everlasting life. Makes sense. But I think this leads to a thinking which might be a little off, is that God only, uh, that eternal life is only when we, for some place and some time after life. I don't think that's wrong entirely. I just don't think it's complete. And, and maybe this is a better... Maybe this is a better translation of it, that God so loved the world that He gave His only one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have the life of the age to come. So yes, it's for a future, but that future can also be now. We can experience God's kingdom now, and that's, we've talked about this before, we live in this tension, the now and the not yet. His kingdom is here re- revealed to us through Jesus, I mean, we've seen it, right? We could, go, we could go through a list of things. We've seen healings. We've seen people change their lives because of Jesus. We've seen radical things happen, transformation happen. We've seen the ozone layer heal itself. I just, someone told me that the other day. I thought that was amazing. The ozone layer is healing itself. Who told me that? Are you here? Just, I want to get a source on that fact, but, oh yeah, Matt, you told me that. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> he read it online, guys. It's true. The ozone layer is getting better. We could drive cars still. No. No, no, no. There's, we've gone off track. Get back to the notes here. I love uh, Paul Stevens, a very, uh, a, uh, what's the word when you're practical? practitioner. Our goal is not to become the body beautiful, but to be the body given for the world as we share Jesus' ministry of death and resurrection. And this is what Jesus modeled in the passage we've been reading, John three sixteen and 17, that He gave His only Son and that God sent His Son. It's about being given and sent. And this hopefully forms the basis for our approach to this outward this complex, this tricky direction that we're given and sent. What does it mean to embody this? Well, I have this question rattling around in my head, and I want to pass it on to you so hopefully you can lose some sleep over it too. 
What does a church look like that faces the world and believes? I'm not whole if you're not whole. What does a church look like that faces the world and believes, I'm not whole if you're not whole? Just think about that. Think of ways how maybe we've ignored that. Or ways that God is calling us even now to be inconvenienced, to help someone in their, in their brokenness, in their need. Mother Teresa, always, always good to read from her. She said, I used to pray that God would feed the hungry or do this or that, but now I pray that he will guide me to do whatever I'm supposed to do, what I can do. I used to pray for answers, but now I'm praying for strength. I used to believe that prayer changes things, but now I know that prayer changes us and we change things. Yeah, get her done, Mother Teresa. The prayer changes us and we change things. I feel like uh, maybe Canadian, it's a Canadian thing, like we, we kind of change things. We, we'll change things maybe if the other party is it's they're okay with it or something i don't know but i feel like we can learn something from the tenacity of mother Teresa. and i pray that we could be this kind of outward facing church motivated by love positioned outward and joining god in his work of renewal and how do we do this i think by answering that question how do we how do we meet someone's need for wholeness How's Jesus calling us to be part of that? And uh, I don't want to leave without some practical examples. I know there's tons in this room, and we could probably, we could probably go around and get some re- a really good list going. And I feel like we started that work with the beginning of our, our Renewal Sunday, just hearing people, and how are you practically doing this? How are you practically facing outward? We talked a little bit about um, how Renewal Sunday has been about uh, people in nonprofit work, but wanting to expand that to everyone. Every person is involved in renewal work. It's not reserved for the people that are doing nonprofit work in the name of Jesus. It's, it's the mom who's mothering in the name of Jesus. Uh, it's the student who's learning in the name of Jesus. It's the teacher. It's the, you know, the list goes on. So how do we practice this? I think first we need to be reminded that we can't do this on our own. We're not extending our own welcome, that we need the Spirit. And I think the first invitation is that we need to spend time. We need to spend some serious time in the Spirit, asking the Spirit where to go, how to lead us, how to, how to participate in someone's brokenness, how to participate in the brokenness around us, how to participate in our own brokenness, so that change can occur and we can help bring change. Some ways that I've thought about it in my own life is, again, this idea of curating this, and I don't naturally do this all the time, so if I put it in my schedule, I find that I'm more likely to do it than if I'm just like, yes, I need to be more outward-facing. Okay, Scott, well, put it on, like, put it on paper, put it on the calendar. When are you going to do that? Or how are you going to do that? And I know it's it's a mindset. It's not just specific actions, but those specific things help. So things that have helped me is going for prayer walks, just looking out, walking with your eyes open and praying. Um, signing up for, to volunteer at a nonprofit. Signing up to, uh, to participate in. There's many local ministries and uh, opportunities around here. 
Um, another way is to learn who your physical neighbor, neighbors are, their names. Uh, learn more about them. Invite them over. You know all these things. This is a challenging one. Develop friendships with people who are not like you. Your neighbor, you know, every, every person. In the neighborhood groups, we, uh, we practice this outward direction, and maybe that's, that's the kind of help you need is to participate in a neighborhood group. I think all of this, all of this to say, we, uh, we have this constant reminder that we are not uh, people that go to church. We are people that are the church. And the table is where we, we get to receive God's ministry so that we can then participate in it. So as we come to the table and as we say these words, let's remember that this morning. We're receiving God's ministry. We're receiving the bread and the wine so that we can give of it. And that uh, our motivation would be love, that we could be faced outward. And the goal of it all is renewal. Let's pray. Jesus, help us in this. Oh, we need a, a reorientation to your love, to what your Spirit is doing in and amongst us. I thank you for all the ways in which we see this active in our community, that we are people who understand the concept of being a neighbor, that we are people that understand the concept of loving. And I pray, Lord, for more stories of action and let our, our ministry precede our theology, that we wouldn't just wait until we understand everything, but step out radically, follow you. So God, we need your help, and uh, the, that's the only thing I think to pray is, God, help us. Be with us, Lord, as we receive the bread, your body, your blood. Maybe, may we be people that remember your sacrifice, and may we carry that with us today. Amen. Let's say the words of the the table that need together. Just read where is in the bold. So this reminder that the gospel is the good news, that God our Father, the creator out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us.